0: Hello and welcome to The Switzerland Show, and it's a week when you can't say anything without putting the word coronavirus in front of it, isn't it, Paul? Everything's coronavirus. Everything's coronavirus. Toilet pa- paper, coronavirus. Yep, yep. Just Stock market <laughs> coronavirus. <laughs> I was going to say, just as we
2: became bushfire experts, oh, we're, right. now, or we're now... Coronavirus. We're well, flood say, experts for a short time. Flood experts. I don't think we'd be called viro- virologists. Is that the right word? Virologists. Uh, yeah, but we're vi- we're becoming coronavirus experts. Yeah. Or We're all expert about something, Peter. And you've got to be expert. That's, uh, that's, that's right. the name
0: of the game. But of we're, course we're flexible we're, here. And we know the difference between a pandemic and an epidemic. And I think we're starting to understand there's a bigger threat to all our lives. It's called an... Infodemic. Everyone's just throwing coronavirus info at us day in, day out. Everyone's telling us we're going to be dying. No, we're not going to be dying. We're all going to have this. It's not going to hurt us. I just can't. I'm, I'm coronavirus out, mate.
2: So we had to get the uh, our trusted source about yes. about who can tell us about coronavirus and
0: what the actual impact is. And, of course, that's everyone's favourite doctor. Yeah, Dr. Ross Walker. He's a cardiologist, but he's across so much stuff because he's been in the media answering questions for normal nincompoops like you and me, Paul, when it comes to, there, to medical there is matters. But there's a lot
2: of normal nincompoop behaviour. I mean, yeah. I think the toilet paper... It, Takes the cake, but look, look the number of people uh, who still think that wearing a mask is going to save them from getting
0: the Uh virus—it's incredible. It it makes no difference. But Paul, what what if you had this big gas mask? You know, would that help? If you covered your whole
2: face and your whole body, possibly, yeah. Yeah, Because I mean, it's spread by the, you know, when people sneeze and cough, and it's in the little. But it's not, in the air. But, so but all the mask can do is, yeah. is, is not to stop you getting it, it's to yeah. stop you but,
0: but if it's in the coughing air, on somebody else. if it's in the air, but it still has to get in your mouth somehow. As long as you keep your mouth shut, you're, you're, you're a good chance, aren't you? I'm dead. I've never got my mouth shut. I'm always talking. Well, I
2: think the other thing people need to talk about are recovery rates. So yeah. Let's just be honest about who is getting it. People yeah. who are getting it are, are elderly. Many of them ex-smokers or current smokers, a lot of them with existing conditions, respiratory, Respiratory problems, right. you know, people in their thirties, forties, fifties, ten-year-olds—they're not get they're, If they're getting it, it's, they get over it like a cold. Like yeah. this is. Uh,
0: but this is a typical example. This is you know, medium you, mayhem. Either, no, no, but this is typical. Here's a bloke who cut his <laughs> teeth in the money markets, and here he is now an expert in coronavirus. Expert, yeah, expert. <laughs> okay. All right, well, Ross Walker coming up. We'll yep. we we'll to Ross. Then you you do a special interview with the CEO of Tyro. Toro is a bank that a lot of people you know, don't know much well, about. It is actually but, a bank. But, but, people, but people do deal with... Tyro a lot, don't they? Yeah, they see it every day.
2: It's one of the biggest providers of uh, FPOS uh, facilities. So mm. if you, were a, you you see the doctor's surgery, you'll see a lot of uh, retail stores, a lot of restaurants mm. prefer Tyro because it's their hospitalities that they specialise in. I know a little bit about Tyro, Peter, because I'm actually a non-executive director of oh, Tyro. But I uh, right. the reason we got Robbie on board was because uh, last year was probably Australia's biggest and most successful float. Mm. Uh, And we've seen, you know, a a report, but obviously the the tech companies, they got hit pretty hard uh, in the coronavirus scare. Some have bounced back, Tyro's bounced back, but the stocks that rallied pretty hard also have have been some of the first ones to be sold. But anyhow, I think it's just good to get Robbie on board to explain what Tyro is, uh, its business model, how it's different to the major banks, and, you know, uh, I think without putting... I'm interested. It's actually Australia's
0: original fintech,
2: Peter. Yeah, it is.
0: I remember interviewing the founder. You, know, you, you can pronounce his name y- better y- than him. Yoss, yoss yeah. Stolman,
2: yeah, yeah. And
0: uh, look, a great story there. So Robbie yeah. is our second guest. Yep. And then finally, Adam Ferry. And Adam is uh, well known to many people if they watch Gruen. He's one, one of the panellists on Gruen. He has a business called Thinkerbell. Not Tinkerbell, but Thinkerbell. And uh, he's got a book out. It's a great book. Great title, Stop Listening to the Customer. that's a bit weird, isn't it? Have you got that right? Stop listening to the customer? Yes, exactly. So he's, he's in the advertising game, but he's telling people in business to stop listening to the customer. I'm really interested I to see I am, because yes. that would be heresy for most. Uh, that's right.
2: I mean, every company around the world basically right. his strategy. We want to learn about our customers, that's right?
0: right. That's and we want to understand right. our customers. Spot that's on. the first thing they all say. And this guy's an expert. Yeah. An expert. Tell, he's on television, you know, on an advertising show called Ruin. So we have to see what Adam's. I'm about... You need to ask him what he's smoking. <laughs> That's right. Definitely. I, will, I, will, I promise you I will ask that. Well, if there's something that is scaring the entire world and such that the whole world is now going long toilet paper, it's the coronavirus. And, look, I've got a funny feeling that it feels to me that... This is like a, an infodemic. It's not a pandemic. It's an infodemic. The world's just going mad through, through the media, and I just want some, you know, good sense from that great doctor, the greatest doctor on the planet, Doctor Ross Walker. How are you, mate?
1: <laughs> well, I love the introduction. I'm I'm extremely well, and and I'm coronavirus free, so that's good.
0: Okay. Now, of course, Paul Rickard's here as well. And Paul's become one of these experts on, he calls it COVID-19. You know a guy's an expert when he starts calling it COVID-19. Well, that's the name of the disease, as
1: I understand, Ross. Is that correct? It is is the new name for the disease, COVID-19, because the, the reality is that SARS, MERS, they're all coronaviruses. So we're just saying this is a coronavirus in a generic way. Now, at least we can give it a name so it doesn't feel so left out. So it's but, COVID-19.
0: So so I'm thinking about the Mexican who thought it was a good idea to name a beer after a well-known virus.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He must have been, must uh,
0: been drinking a lot of beer but, when he came up with that idea.
1: This <laughs> shows you how stupid people are. Not everyone, but yeah. a, a significant majority that the sales of Corona beer have dropped because of the name. Yeah, I mean, it's just—it's like people in Australia not going to Chinese restaurants anymore because they're scared of getting their coronavirus.
0: I, I wouldn't. Just, just I, yes. like I, I wouldn't be surprised if that that's actually going on at the moment.
1: Yeah, so no, it is—it is going on. Oh. People aren't going to Chinese restaurants as much. Uh, uh, and I, I had a, I had a patient the other day who came to see me. She was thinking of cancelling her trip. To Queensland on the weekend <laughs> for fear of the coronavirus because she didn't want to get on a plane. I mean, seriously, this is hysterical nonsense. And can I make the point that every every year around the world, there are somewhere between, this, is, this comes from the CDC in America, 291,000 to 646,000 deaths from influenza. Now, so far, in, in just over a couple of months, there have been ninety-two, just over 92,000 cases of corona, 3,131 deaths in over two months. Compare that to, to influenza. I mean, I, I just don't understand the hysteria. People just like a drama. That's why people watch reality TV, for God's sake.
0: Mm, okay. So let, let's put this into perspective then. From what we can yep. see... If you're an older person and you've got respiratory problems, probably been a a long-term smoker, and you've got Mm -hmm. other medical issues, you seem to be the most vulnerable to this. Is that
1: right? Uh, There's no doubt. And I'm not suggesting this is benign and we should forget about it. It it can kill some people, especially the, uh, the older group of people or people with comorbid conditions, such as diabetes, severe heart disease, cancer, respiratory disease. Of course, it can be a serious illness. Now, let's not demeanour the illness, but also let's put it in, into perspective. As I said, there's about a 3% death rate, which is, which is just a bit around the typical to severe influenza, about a 3% death rate. and And now the cases in China appear to be slowing down because as the condition goes on a bit, and there's a thing called herd immunity, now, herd immunity, and this is really interesting. So, so, for example, with influenza, if you vaccinate a population and only 60 70% of the people get the vaccination, when they cough, they're shedding what we call antigens, which are little bits of the, of the vaccinated proteins that have been created. So you get a vaccine that's a bit similar to the virus, so you create antibodies to that. And when they cough those little bits of, of uh, antigen out into the environment, people take that on, even who haven't had the immunity, and we get herd immunity. So what's going to happen with this? And it's already happening in China. Uh, a, a small proportion of the Chinese population have been infected with corona. But those who have are probably giving a bit of herd immunity to the rest of them. So the disease is, is slowing down in China. Uh, and, and we're getting now more new cases outside of China than we're having in China. But as I said, it's slowing down there. That the hot spots around the world now are South Korea. And interestingly, I saw this this morning 60% of the, of the 5,000, just over 5,000 cases in South Korea come from this secret religious sect. Mm. So there you go. Um, and South Korea, Iran, and Northern Italy are the hot spots around the world. But many countries have got a few cases. They're, 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 look at, Look at Australia, for example. We've had 38 cases of coronavirus in a population of just under 25 million, and 15 of those cases are still active. So many of them have gone home and they're, they're fine. There's yeah. been one death, and that was the elderly guy and the diamond princess.
2: Ross, what people um, aren't talking about is the recovery rate. And w- when you recover, does that give you immunity? Can you just, can you just explain how that works
1: for... Um, yeah, yeah, uh, um, yeah you're, you're right, Paul. Un- unless you have a really dicky immune system. So if, if you're a relatively healthy person, if you get corona, it's one per customer. You don't get it again. Right. So the only people who could be reinfected are people who probably never got, never cleared the virus completely from their body because their immune system's not working well. And in fact, there, there's minor versions of coronavirus that, that two-thirds of children have had. And this is probably why we're, we're not seeing much infection in children because they've already had a similar version to coronavirus in a benign sort of way that's given them immunity. So if you've had SARS, if you've had MERS, if you've already had the coronavirus, it's one per customer.
0: So, so Ross, I've heard sort of like terrible projections about what's going to happen, that, that this coronavirus is going to be so bad, effectively the global economy will, will be closed down in June or July. What's your yep. medical view yep. on that likely of that actually happening?
1: Well, if we keep up this hysterical nonsense about rushing out and buying as many rolls of toilet paper and pasta and flour that you possibly can, it may do so. And, and you remember when... when when we're all younger people, not that we're old, but when we're younger people, yeah. all the petrol strikes. Mm-hmm. And and so these people would be lying out for hours to get petrol. If no one bothered to do that, there wouldn't have been an issue. Mm. And it's the same thing here. If no one bothered to go out and do the rush on toilet paper, flour, etc., etc., et cetera, there wouldn't be a problem with the world economy. It's you economists whipping people into a frenzy about this rather than just putting it into medical perspective. <laughs> but but un- unfortunately, people don't like reality. They like the drama. Mm. And so if we if we reduce the drama there would be no issues. Now of course we do need to quarantine cases. We do need to be careful about this, but we've got to stop the hysteria because it is hysterical nonsense.
0: Now I've also been told by an economist, no less, yep. that oh. this is going to be a really big problem for the now wait for it the genome of course that had me running for google straight away what in the hell (laughs) is the genome but once it's in the genome apparently yeah it's like roll down the shutters and just give up on life until the genome learns how to cope come on explain to me explain to me what it is i don't understand
1: okay it's actually pronounced genome and it's the the human (laughs) genome is basically the part of our dna that codes for who we are so so in one DNA molecule, there are three billion base pairs. So if you strung a DNA molecule out, it's actually two meters long. It's got to be bent, turned, and twisted in this little dot that you can't see with the naked eye. Mm. And within that, with that, within that genome, there are, there are whole little bits of, of coding DNA that code for 26,000 genes which then codes for about 150,000 proteins. So, so one gene really codes for about four or five different proteins, depending on the shape of the DNA at the time. So what they're suggesting is that the virus might get into this genome and change the structure of the genome. I think that's, uh, well, that's a potential issue. But again, the, the human body is extremely resilient. It forms immunity to these things, uh, we're always changing our DNA every every month, and so 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 what ha- what happens, for example, if you look at your skin, you've got in your skin these things called stem cells, where well, you've got stem cells everywhere, but the the skin stem cells get a signal every month. To become new skin, so basically one stem cell divides into another stem cell, so it keep making skin, and then into the daughter cell it becomes skin. So I hope this doesn't sound too too uh, technical. Yeah. But but what can happen is a virus can get into that particular stem cell and change it, change the nature of the stem cell, and therefore change the nature of how the skin is formed. Now, again, we have repair mechanisms to get rid of those things we call mutations. So, for example, if you're stupid enough to smoke, and there are still some people who do it, about 13% of the population is still smoking. Mm. Every time you smoke a cigarette, you cause a mutation in your lung DNA. So if you've got about 22,000 mutations, which is about 20 years of smoking, you may form a lung cancer. Uh, But the body's always trying to repair that to stop that from happening, as it will do with most cases of corona. So I don't think there's too much of a problem for the human genome, which has survived now for millions and millions of years without huge changes.
0: Okay, now now one last thing for me. So just
1: on that,
2: Peter, economists... Let's, let's not go near the genome, yeah, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's a lesson. Well, well, never on
0: rely on, <laughs> on the economists for medical in, information. In the, in the,
1: look, look, Peter, Peter will tell you this, Paul. Never rely on Ross Walker for economic <laughs> information <laughs> because yeah. you won't get it. So, so I, I stick to what I'm good at. And I and as far as the economics go, I leave it up to you two experts.
0: Okay. Well, Ross, um, I think the, the most important thing for us is when – The World Health Organization tells us that the rate of infection and deaths are falling in places like Europe and South Korea. Mm -hmm. That's when I think the stock market will turn around. If you you had to guess, how long do you reckon it'll take, Ross?
1: I I think as things start to heat up in Europe and China, so as the Northern Hemisphere goes into summer, Mm -hmm. or or certainly at least into spring, um, which it's starting to do now, of course, we'll see the virus going to, to, to die off. So the virus will die off before many more people will. So I think that's that's the issue. Why have we only had 38 cases in Australia? Because it's summer, for goodness sake. So do we, and, and,
2: So Ross, on that, so then do we have ex, extra risks as we come into winter? Autumn comes into Oh, winter? no,
1: because by that time, I think the corona would have died off. I, I, I just It's the same thing. SARS was dreadful when it happened, killed 10% of people, not 3%. MERS, the Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome, killed 36% of people are exposed to it, but it still died off when you went into the warmer weather. So so I think by the time we get into our winter, I think corona is going to be a, a hysteria of the past.
0: Well, that's the word from the greatest doctor the world has ever seen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <can cover> there.
0: <laughs> He's so great that Nine's been wise enough to bring back his radio show. When does your radio show recommence, Ross?
1: Yeah, it re- restarts it's on March the 29th. It goes for an hour at eight o'clock on a sun- so Sunday night at uh, 8 o'clock every, every week.
0: So it would be 2GB. What, what
1: else? 2GB. Uh, we, we, we go all throughout Australia. So 3AW, 4BC, 6PR. 3D, or,
0: or like
1: five, 5AA and 2CC. So we go all throughout Australia, 8 to 9 every Sunday. Starting
0: March the 28th. So, so, all Australia will be saved by the greatest doctor ever, Ross Walker. <laughs> oh, <cut> it out. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks Here for coming is. on the program. Yeah, talk to you later, guys. Thanks, Ross. Now, Paul, it's time for a word from our sponsor. Well, the
2: sponsor, of course, is us, Peter, and we want to talk about our Switch uh, Investor Strategy Day, which is coming up uh, on Tuesday, March the 17th in Sydney. Correct. Tuesday the 24th of March in Melbourne and Wednesday the 25th of March in Brisbane. So who's going to be there? Well, we've got lots of people, but we'll have Joe Hockey because, uh, you know, Democrats, presidential election year, it was all sort of going on pretty nicely. He played golf with Trump. But, you know, let, let's we'll get through the coronavirus issue and we'll mm. come back to a lot about US politics are going to be a big, big issue for markets this year because yeah. we know that uh, historically the fourth year of a, of a of the term that 's a big year in u s markets, and we know he 's the most market watching guy in history of u s presidents so yes, without, um, yeah. but we 've got a lot of great fund managers and others to come and talk about the market now we titled this uh, strategy day about investing in a mature bull market the twelfth year yeah. Well, coronavirus has knocked it off a little bit, but I still think it's a bull market, Peter. And even so... It definitely is a bull market. I, this is a correction. we are still got to work out what to do as a result of it. So mm. uh, I think there's lots of opportunity to really plan out um, what you're doing because uh, mm. interest rates are at record lows. We, you know, we've got to think pretty hard about this. So that's on Tuesday, March 17th, Tuesday, March 24th, Melbourne, Tuesday, March. Wednesday, March 25th, Brisbane. You get your tickets
0: at... SwitzerEvents.com.au Our next guest is Robbie Cook, the CEO
2: of Tyro. Tyro was perhaps last year's most successful IPO. And just before I come to Robbie, I should disclose that I'm actually director of Tyro. So with that disclosure out of the way, uh, welcome to the program, Robbie. Thanks, Paul. Now, I'm pretty familiar with the Tyro story, but I know there are lots that aren't. So for our listeners, could you just tell me a bit about Tyro, what it does, and uh and uh, what people can look forward to.
3: Yeah, well Tyra is, am- is an amazing story and it's a true Australian tech success story. Um, definitely not a flash in the pan or a recent um, entry into the payment space. The business business has been around for coming up to 17 years and it's it's been a, a fascinating journey. It was set up by three entrepreneurs 17- 17 years ago who decided to build a payment switch engine from scratch and take on the four major banks. and um, really the heritage of the business has been you know we're we're a tech we're a tech company. we've got about four hundred and eighty employees, half of whom are um, technologists mm-hmm. and we pride ourselves on providing banking and payment solutions uh, to the and e core predominantly and uh, innovating, uh, providing quite unique solutions that uh, typically can only be developed by a company that's got the technical depth of talent that we've got and also, the understanding of the verticals that we work in. So we're actually very specialised. We work in three key verticals, health, hospitality and retail, um, and we only operate in the Australian market. So the, the core of TORO's success has just been that deep domain understanding of those verticals. We're, you know, payments business predominantly. 95-plus percent of our revenues come from payments. Uh, but we do offer ancillary products around the payments ecosystem, ancillary banking products, particularly, which are designed for those SMEs. So it's... A, a fascinating business. Um, we're growing very rapidly. Have been growing very rapidly over the last five years, um, and we, we're we're uh, we're in a really um, nice position in the market, with the fifth largest.
2: Okay, let let let's come to that. Let me just talk about your competitors because uh, your main competitors are the major banks. So, what are your key points of differentiation against the major banks?
3: Yeah, and it does. It comes back to that um, that deep understanding of the of the verticals we work in. So we, we we're able to produce solutions um, that are purpose built for those verticals. So put it in perspective, you know, Tyro was first to market with a number of um, leading features, things like payment table, split the bill, percentage based tipping. Uh, more recently we're the first Australian bank to introduce least cost routing, which is that is a cost saving initiative for merchants. We're the first bank to integrate Alipay into our payment system. So it's uh, it's it's the it's the uh, Understanding with those verticals and our ability to produce the right solutions, which is key. But on top of that, it's our availability. So we've got four nines availability. Uh, we're integrated with three hundred plus point of sale systems. Uh, we process transactions very rapidly, one point two seconds. So, and all that's driven by that technology uh, capabilities that we have.
2: And you say, Robbie, you're a fintech, but Tyro has been around about sixteen years, so. Are You a sort of Australia's first fintech, and how do you see that sort of? You know, how do you, how would you still brand yourself as a fintech today?
3: Yeah, I, th- I think, and you know, look, I, I couldn't vouch for this, but I'd say we would have to be uh, one of the first fintechs in the Australian market. And look, we don't sort we don't sort of categorise ourselves that way, and we our, our we're a payment specialist business with a very uh, with technology at our core. So we're, we're and we have a full banking license. So we're a little bit different. Um, so that's the, what people would typically call a fintech, but we're, we're a tech-driven payments business is probably the best way to describe that.
2: Okay, let, let's talk about the financial side because uh, Tyro was uh, probably the most successful IPO in uh, 2019. Earlier this year, it got up to a market cap of probably close to $2 billion. We've seen a bit of change since then, but let's just talk about the numbers uh, and how you went in the um, your maiden financial report, which covered the... Um, the December half-year.
3: Yeah, look, we, we've, we've had a very successful first half and, and we've got a prospectus there for the full financial year. So this is a prospectus out to FY20. But for the first half, we're tracking ahead of um, the run rate we had in the prospectus on, on all key metrics. So we've processed transactions for the half-year of $11.1 billion. So it's sort of up 30% uh, year on half on same half last year tracking ahead of prospectus run rate which was sitting around about the 28 29 percent mark um our merchant numbers we've got thirty-two thousand five hundred odd merchants working with us uh we our revenue number was sitting at 117.3 million which is about 29 percent up on the same half last year which is tracking ahead of prospectus for twenty-seven percent. so i'm pretty pleased with that that performance we uh, produced a positive EBITDA outcome of $1.5 million for the half year. We're forecasting for the full year, though, to have a loss of around about $600,000. And that's really reflective of the fact that we are um, targeting growth. Um, but we're doing that in a way where we're focused on just keeping our cost base fairly controlled. So our operating expenses increased about 10%, you know, producing that um, close to 30% top-line growth. So we're pleased with the performance. We're tracking the perspectives and, uh, you know, it's now now we're through results period. It's just all, all systems go for the next half.
2: Now, I know you can't comment on the share price, so I won't ask you. But just help me out here because a lot of investors ask me this question in that, uh, you know, Tyro uh, had a market cap of close to $2 billion. You're only just sort of breaking even. Can you just sort of rationalise that for investors that are used to, you know, share prices and profits? And, I mean, what, what's the story about growth and, and the way – Investors value a company like yours.
3: Yeah, now look, it, it. I mean, it definitely is a a um, change in the, the, the way the market operates, and this is something I've seen. You know, I've run you know Pat's Group, which is a you know, top sixty listed company in Australia, and what if before that, but the this space in particular, and globally, the payment space. Uh, there's a lot of disruption and change going on on, and there's a lot of uh, movement of market share from incumbent players to players such as such as as Tyro. So the way the market's looking at us is there there is, um, as I said, we're the fifth largest uh, merchant acquirer in the market um, by terminal count. Those four major banks are the largest. Um, And there is a lot of opportunity to continue growing that plus 30% mark and not not that we're um, giving any guidance out by forecast, but there's a good strong trajectory and run rate there for the business. So the market's looking at that and putting value on that and – uh, really, the, the the view of the market is just so long as we can demonstrate we're leveraging off the operational base we've got, and that's coming through in the the fact that our operating expenses are you know tracking around that 10% mark and still producing a 30% plus transaction value list. That's where that's how the market I I believe is looking at us and looking at our our uh, our business, and it's a very similar story to other global players, players like uh, Square and uh, Adyen and uh, Stone Coast. There's a number of global uh, peers, if you like, in the same sort of space.
2: So, so the point is, I, I guess, is that you're choosing to invest heavily in the business, and so growth becomes the key driver. Is that the way to look at it?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, if we were of a mindset that we decided that we didn't want to keep that growth profile, we, we you know, you'd. Yeah, it, it, the cost base would probably look a bit different, um, and so it's definitely investment to keep tapping the growth profile.
2: Right. Now let's talk about the payments landscape because, uh, you know, I, I guess for consumers it's really hard to keep up with. Now we've we've we have had Apple Pay, we've we've got Ali Pay, we've got After Pay, and the, you know, we've got Zip Money. We've got all sorts of different ways that um, your people can pay for goods. Everyone just wants to make makes payment really easy. Ooh. If you, what do you think consumers can look forward to? Is, it, is are we going to see more change, or is it, do you think it's sort of, uh, you know, that it might be about to slow up a little bit here?
3: Well I don't think it'll slow up, Paul. I think uh, it's interesting. The payment space was regarded as quite boring a decade ago, and I know because we were, you know, what if we, we, you know, we were very dependent on our um, e-commerce payment platform. Nothing much changed, but if you look at payments today; it is, uh, you know, rapid change. Um, and really, from a merchant's point of view, it's getting quite complicated and confusing. So really, from from our perspective, it's about simplifying that complexity for merchants. And our, our position in the market is to make sure our terminals and our platform can process whatever transactions or whatever way a consumer may want to pay. So that is why we've done things like introduced um, Alipay. It's why, um, you know, the... Um, leaf cross routing was something we introduced, which is something the merchants want. Um, and the future will continue to evolve and change. And we're we're in a really good position to deal with that because of our um, you know, our team of engineers and technologists. We can we can we can uh, adapt to change. We own our tech stack. So we, whilst we don't manufacture our terminals, the software on our terminals is ours. Our switch engines are proprietary. Our fraud tools proprietary. And that underwrites our, abilities, our, our ability to keep, um, stay nimble and keep addressing change and keep delivering solutions, which, is, which are right for consumers and makes it simpler for merchants to actually deal with them.
2: And what do you think of the future of cash is when everyone sort of – look, I'm probably the only person I know who carries cash. I go into a queue and uh, I rule out the cash. Everyone's tapping in front of me. But do uh, you think it's just going to – we're going to see continual um, just increase in sort of use of devices and other things to – for, for, for the way we pay,
3: uh, absolutely. I think ca- cash. it will always survive, but it's becoming a it's a declining way of paying, and um, you know that's that's been borne out in some other offshore markets who are even further advanced than Australia in terms of um, people not using cash. So we've we've seen that trend for the last five years in Australia, and I think it will continue. Uh, we'll continue to see that migration away from cash. Uh, which again, you know, in some areas it cr- creates some challenges, and uh, you know the the markets having to, to adapt to that. And there's some some channels where people were very used to cash being used all the time, and um, they're, they're having to find new ways and cheaper payment devices and cheaper tech to be able to to uh, deal with that. So we're, we're thinking carefully about that space as well.
2: And finally, Rob, I just want to go back to what it's like running a fintech because uh, you mentioned your background, which was what if that, of course, was. Uh, I think was very much the part of the sort of australian leader in in online travel that sort of i think was taken over by uh booking.com or something like that uh, at some stage and, and and tats of course which was uh, the 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 lotto business that's now part of tapcorp i guess tats and 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 uh fintech could be quite different is there a lot of uh, for you as a as a leader are there different challenges in running a a, a team of fintechy people? I mean, just, just sort of tell me about the cultural aspects there.
3: Yeah, look, I, I've got to say, Tyro reminds me very much of whatif.com. I mean, whatif was a, it was the leading online accommodation booking platform. We were disrupting traditional travel agents, and we were um, a team of, at, at the end of my seven years there, were about 500 people, mm-hmm. big technology team, all proprietary tech, and we, we grew from about 180 when I joined mm-hmm. So, very fast moving, uh, very driven team, very smart people, and Tyro is very much the same. So, it's a lot of fun working uh, with teams with that sort of energy and drive. And there's a common purpose at Tyro. At it is about doing the right thing for SMEs and making SMEs' lives better and easier and simpler. And, um, you know, that was, uh, that's, that's when you've got that sort of common goal, which we which you definitely have at Tyro and we had a What If, it's, uh, it's all of fun. I mean, it's, it's, In all these sorts of businesses, though, it's it's about attracting the right people to the organization, keeping the right talent engaged, and um, making sure that you are um, very much focused on the customer and what's best for the customer, and um, that's the secret of the success. So whilst we're a FinTech or a tech business and operating that technology space, um, it is ultimately about producing the the right outcome for the merchant, um, making their lives simpler, and... um, um, that's the driver. Um, but they're fun, they're definitely fun businesses to work in. Um, and you know, the team here is um, is, a, is a brilliant team.
2: Well, Robbie, there are a lot of uh, new shareholders in Tyro uh, looking forward to your success. Uh, I'm an existing shareholder, so I'm one of them. But uh, look, thank you uh, thank you for joining us on Switzer. It's been great to talk to you.
3: Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it.
2: That's Robbie Cook, the CEO and Managing Director of Tyro Payments.
0: Okay, once again, it's time for a word from our sponsor. And just tell them, I think we should talk about the great book. Okay? We should talk about the great book. It's called Join the Rich
2: Club. It's uh, it's authored who by… Who is are written by? Well, I know who made <laughs> a significant contribution. Yeah, you you, won, I, you I, one I, lousy <laughs> chapter
0: on superannuation. Here he is trying plus, to, to claim the whole the chapter. List
2: is out there. I can assure you I, I read every word. Yeah, he I had to uh Forget changes. how much I change. Anyhow, it,
0: the actual official author, the right. official author is one P. Switzer. Switzer that's right. right. He's the guy. He's a guy who sweated it out, thinking it through, not for his customers but for his own brand. Yeah, I have to listen to Adam Ferrier. You know, which he, he's coming up soon. He reckons the customers aren't important; the brand's more important. You wait until you hear that? Yeah.
2: So you're just you. Were to, you I, I, it starts with a B. The customers. <laughs> you just threw that out. Uh. I said all I care about is the brand. Is uh, that right? What you're yeah, thinking when you are thinking? Yeah, is absolutely wrong.
0: Yep. I did think about the customer, but maybe I have to learn something from Anyhow, Adam Ferry. You,
2: we're... We are, you can get this book, of course, online, and it's uh, Join the Rich Club. It's uh, $24.95, mm. and you get that at Switzerstore, all one word, switzerstore.com.au. Switzerstore.com.au for Join the Rich Club. The best 25 bucks you'll ever spend. Written by that fantastic, and uh, <laughs> that's
0: the first compliment you've ever <laughs> given me.
2: The Luminary <laughs> 1P Switzer Esquire. <laughs>
0: My next guest is a multi-award-winning advertising creative and founder of the agency Thinkabell. He's also a leading Australian consumer psychologist, an expert brand strategist, and an authority on behavioral economics. Adam Ferrier, thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you, Peter. Great to be here.
0: Now, before we start talking about all the stuff I always like to talk to you about, You've got a new book out and the title is fantastic. Stop listening to the customer. What craziness is behind that? <laughs>
4: um, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. At the moment, I um, speak to a lot of different clients and a lot of different uh, businesses and they all tell me how they need to get under the skin of their customer, do more research, do more human-centered design, understand the needs and the wants. And whilst they're doing all of this, I ask them that's great. That's really good information to get hold of. But how does it fit with your brand strategy? How does it fit with what your brand's about? And often they'll go, huh? And they'll say, you know, uh, we don't know. We're not entirely sure. So my hypothesis is, is that our level of customer understanding is going up and going through the roof, but our level of understanding of what our brand's about and our brand strategy is declining. And the book is just an attempt to try to address the balance and get get organisations to be more brand-centric in their thinking.
2: So, Adam, you're saying that perhaps companies need to think more about uh, the image they're portraying to their customers as opposed to what their customers are telling them. Is that right?
4: Yeah, that's right. But In your question, when you said image, there you – the lies, a the slight prejudice, I think, to what a brand's about. Mm-hmm. A brand is everything the business does and every single way that business has value uh, to the customer experience. So from its supply chain management uh, to what it makes to what the uniforms are that you know, staff wear and to, to its advertising. And all of that needs to be, needs to be done with a central organizing idea of what the brand's about. And, you know, then you've got things like consistent tone, personality, and look and feel and all that kind of stuff. But it's really understanding the brand and getting the business to be really, really central about what the brand's about.
0: Okay. Can, can, really I ask you, priority. can I ask you this question then? Are you basically saying that it's more important for the person running a business to know exactly what his or her product and business is rather than researching what customers want and becoming what customers want? I'm sure people... Yeah,
4: are, I think... it's an artificial dichotomy. Yeah. But if I had to put it down to that, I'll say yes. So the founder's vision is more important than the, than the customer's need. At the end of the day, the brand exists, exists for the business to make a profit. Mm-hmm. And so that should be the number one priority. Malcolm Gladwell once said to me, what people really want from brands is to be left alone. And I get that. You know what I mean? Like people don't necessarily need your brand. They need the category your brand exists in. So if you're a soft drink manufacturer, they need a drink. They don't necessarily need your brand or product. And so often the more we listen to them, the more we'll do stuff that makes us kind of fade away. And I don't think that's a strong business model.
0: Okay, so well, I went to Italy a couple of years ago, and I, I visited the uh, factory for Maserati, and yep. and everything I saw there was absolutely beautiful. Even the the uniforms that the guys from the factory were wearing were as though they were designed by Italian designers, and I bet you they were. You know, they actually looked mm-hmm. terrific. And I I must admit, listening to you then, I reckon the people who design Ferraris and Maseratis really don't care about the customer. The customers actually care about what they've created. It's like I'm waiting to see what Ferrari's made for me rather than – yeah, and I'll give you another example. Yeah. Well, I work with Joe. Yeah, well, I
4: work with. Isn't we, that my job? Isn't that my job, Peter? I'm meant to be. I'm interviewing <laughs> me, and I'm be giving the example. Yes, you, yes, are, you, you are, are,
0: Adam, and, and please <laughs> carry on. <laughs> but yeah, but it's funny, as I listen to that great example of mine. It reminded me of Doug, Doug Mulro when I worked with him many years ago on Triple M, and Doug had a Ferrari, and some, some guy bagged him and said, oh, Doug, the, the boot on a Ferrari is so small. Why would you have one? And Doug said, don't worry, it's big enough for my wallet. And <laughs> I think the, yeah. the, the bottom line was Ferrari didn't care about the, the size of a wallet for for suitcases. They just did it, and people bought it anyway. And would you like to ask Peter a question? <laughs>
4: Yeah, <laughs> but I'm going to start speaking. Um, the two most, the two strongest brands, I think, are really good uh, kind of brand-led thinking. I think are IKEA and Apple, and neither of those uh, businesses do customer-centric activity. So if I think about IKEA, I have to drive an hour to go there. I have to walk around this big long maze before I buy I what I want to buy. I go there. Then, mm-hmm. that's right. Then when I get the thing, I have to co-create and build it myself. Now, none of those things are necessarily what customers would ask for. Or customers want, but they're all things that add value to the business. Same thing with Apple. Apple creates extreme inbuilt obsolescence. Mm-hmm. It creates extreme kind of uh, an, a tight infrastructure that you can't escape once you start buying Apple products. They're not customer-centric um, ideas. There, they're, they're about strengthening their brand, and so. Um, yeah, I do. I think I think customers need to understand what their brand stands for what, and how to portray that, mm. and spend more time thinking about that rather than thinking about what consumers might uh, might say they want.
0: But but obviously there are exceptions, and I'll even go back to Apple because one of the big differences between Steve Jobs and Steve, what's his other name, the, the smart one,
3: Wozniaki?
0: Yeah, Yeah. it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. see, he he could make, and he made a brilliant computer, but no one could operate it. But Jobs understood that we're all nincompoops, and he actually made it more customer friendly. So how do you how do you reconcile those two things, Adam? Yeah, he made
4: it more customer friendly, but he didn't do it by necessarily asking asking the customer. He did it by understanding what they need. And mm. I do make the point that you do need customer insight, but the worst way to get that is to often ask people. Yeah. The best way to get it is by observation or speaking to other experts or, or setting up kind of experimental conditions. So I'm not trying to be absolute about it. I'm not saying you don't need customer insight. Uh, you do. But the issue is, if you ask customers, they'll often give you insight about the category. They won't give you insight about what your particular brand should do or say. Mm. So, when, so their needs are always for... Um, for the category, so if you ask people what they want from computing, for example, they wouldn't have said, "Oh, I want uh, a whole selection of fonts." Back in the day, they would have said, "You know, I just want it to be um, uh, kind of simple yeah. or whatever." Yeah. So, easy, to, easy to work. So that,
2: it reminds me Adam, yeah. of, of uh, your thinking a bit like in terms of things like options. And if you ask customers, do they like choice? They say, yes, give me as much choice as they want. When you give them choice, they hate it because they can't <laughs> choose. Yeah. They actually only want one or two or three things maximum and possibly be told this is the one you actually want and these are the two
0: you don't want, right? Yeah. Okay. So don't make, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Adam, don't make it too easy on Adam. good example. Don't make it too easy on Adam because you know, I always like to test out his cockamamie theories, which underpin his very successful business. Adam, give it. Can you give us an example of a, of a business that actually did go unbelievably customer centric? You know, and ask them what they wanted, and it didn't work out.
4: Um, yeah, I reckon the big four banks are making a lot of money, but ask one, ask anybody to differentiate what one uh has that the other one doesn't. Uh and you'll um you'll find that they all focus on the same stuff. They all focus on efficiency and ease of banking, but none of them are uh, uh are doing anything to make the, what their bank stand out versus the others. The same thing could be said for our two kind of department stores. You go onto our two major department stores in Australia, you go onto their website, they're both exactly the same and they're both promising the same kind of thing because they're listening to the customer too much and trying to give them what they want rather than go back into the organisation, understand what it is that they stand for and pumping that out to the world.
0: Have have people in your industry vehemently argued against your point of view on this subject?
4: Uh, They can't because I'm not being absolute about it. So I do think it's need customer insight. I'm just trying to address the balance a bit. Mm. So... I'm not saying you don't need to understand customers what they want and need, but I am saying you need to massively prioritize what you stand for. And when I did some, I did some market research on customers, ironically, before I published the book, and 66% of people said they'd rather spend more time understanding their customers, is the CMOs, mm-hmm. than understanding their brand. And that worried me a lot. Mm. Um, because, you know, I, I, at the end of the day, your brand is, is the most valuable thing on the P&L, and that's what you should be spending time understanding.
0: So, if there's a small business person out there listening to this and, and they wonder, what is this guy, Adam uh, Ferrier, smoking? What, was, <laughs> what What is the advice you'd give them to to actually, you know, I, particularly if they're listening and say, well, I'm, I'm still doing as well as I want and I thought maybe I, I need to understand my customer better. What would you rec- recommend? What advice would you give?
4: I'd say don't do that. I'd say... Focus on what you're, think about what your brand stands for. Can you articulate that in one sentence? Is there a rational uh, promise you're making to customers that they want? And is there an emotional promise that you're making to customers what they want? Mm. And are you expressing all of that? So as long as what you think you want to say and do and what your business is about, are you actually expressing all of that? Mm. And if you can answer yes and yes to those two things, then yeah, sure, maybe um, start to uh, give more consideration to the customer. Yeah. But I find that most businesses don't know what they stand for and then if they do know what they stand for, they're not expressing it very well.
0: Yeah, no, so I guess what you're saying then is, you know, because in your game, people come to you and they want to get more sales as a, as a fu- function of better marketing or better advertising and, and you're saying, well, make sure you've got a really good story to tell and that is wrapped up in your brand?
4: Yes, yeah, it is. But even without advertising, even if I'm just a a fruit and veg shopkeeper and I I need to have a point of view on what my fruit and veg quality is, what my store experience is like, what the whole shop looks like, what that promise is. Am I very clear about that promise? Do I know what my staff say to their customers and how I want them to communicate? Mm. Do I know what I want my staff to wear? That's all of that equal, one coherent story. So just focus on the, on the basics, get all of that humming, get all of that single-minded, and then talk
0: to your customer. Okay, mate. Fantastic. Adam Ferrier, <laughs> <laughs> the author of the book, Stop Listening to the Customer. And we didn't stop listening to you because you're not really a customer of ours, so we did listen to you very intently. Thanks, mate, for coming on the program. <laughs> God bless you, guys. Good on you. Well, that was Adam Ferry, and I warned you, he, he doesn't think much of customers. T- oh, he, he gives a bit of a rating, but the brand's more important, Paul. Well, he's a brand guy, but I do think that's quite
2: fascinating, and, and I, I it, it does sort of, uh, I, I, I think it gets you to reflect on when you pick up a lot of these company presentations, and they all start off with, you know, customer number one, you know, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. um, you sort of you sort of you know, uh, flinch a bit when you see that, but actually, you know, thinking about what you stand for is, I think, what he was saying is actually yeah. more important. And often customers don't know what they want. That's the other thing. Yeah, yeah right?
0: exactly right. Well, I actually came across in the early days of the computer. Uh, there was an expert who used to say to his customers, "Don't tell me what you want, because you don't know what you can have." Yeah, and uh, I think there's that that part. Well, of you it could as say
2: well. you could say that uh, you know Steve Jobs proved that with Apple. I mean. In the sense of things like yeah, you know, the the uh, the iPod and uh, so the iPad yeah. and, and the iPod. We didn't know that did we? we didn't know that. No. What what he was so brilliant at was making it so usable. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and, and intuitive. Freedom. And exactly. that's what he did. But you know, the customer, there wasn't weren't customers sitting out there give me an iPad.
0: That's right. <laughs> exactly. Or right. A, or an iPod or yeah. Yeah.
2: So, you know, customers aren't always Right, uh, and I think uh, I think that's what your colleague was saying. We've actually got to be – companies got to work out what they stand for and got to be true to it, and yep. that's the important thing. And customers will then judge based on the, the quality of all that, the whole, pa- whole package.
0: Okay, that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Thanks, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.